Congressman Adam Schiff was at the center of the maelstrom of ongoing conflict that defined the Trump presidency. Recently, he published his very personal memoir of those years, Midnight in Washington, and it immediately shot to the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. I sat down recently with him for a wide-ranging interview inspired by the topics he raises in his remarkable book, beginning with the attempt of Donald Trump to overturn the results of the election in 2020. Everyone knows that on January 6, 2021, the House and Senate met to count the ballots of the Electoral College sent them by the states. And everyone knows that on January 6, the Capitol building was seized by an angry mob trying to prevent the counting of the ballots. But why did all this happen on January the 6th? Because in 1887, Congress created a law to set out the procedure for counting the ballots of the Electoral College, the Electoral Count Act, also called the ECA. That obscure law says, and I quote, Congress shall be in session on the 6th day of January, succeeding every meeting of the electors. The Senate and the House of Representatives shall meet in the hall of the House of Representatives at the hour of one o'clock in the afternoon on that day, and the President of the Senate shall be their presiding officer, end quote. The President of the Senate is, of course, the sitting Vice President of the United States. So the ECA can be extremely specific and clear right on down to the hour of the day the count should begin. But the ECA was not specific and clear enough to prevent an attempt by Donald Trump to pressure his vice president, Mike Pence, as presiding officer of the count, to refuse to count the ballots of six states, narrowly won by Joe Biden. Pence, to his credit, did not buckle to Trump's demands. But the clarity of the act was not what saved our republic that day. It was Pence's personal decision to defy Trump. The events of January 6th focused the nation's attention on the flaws of the ECA. But changing the ECA will require passage of a new statute in the face of the possibility of a filibuster in the Senate. So neither party alone has the votes to amend the ECA. Inevitably, the question arises, can the two political parties come together to reform an act that will determine the presidencies for generations to come? I posed that question, among others, to Congressman Schiff. This is Wally Knox. Welcome to The Political Conversation. Uh, Shall we jump into it? Sure. In Midnight in Washington, you revealed that in the summer of 2020, uh, you went to Speaker Pelosi and urged the creation of a group of Democrats to plan for any contingency of a challenge to electoral college votes. She agreed and asked you and a small group to look ahead. The 2020 issue was for you the count of electoral votes in the Congress. The 22 elections are obviously all over the country and challenges uh, in those races would be scattered among the 50 states. Nonetheless, Can you discuss whether preparations are being made in the House to deal with the potential for disruption around the country? The answer is yes. And, you know, I regret to say, but the conclusion seems pretty escapable, that here we are one year after January 6th, and the risk of 
um, more violence uh, has gone up, not down. Uh, and the reason I think that's the case is that that big lie about the elections, that the election was stolen, that there was massive fraud. Um, if you persuade people, as the former president uh, has endeavored to do and, and uh, some of his supporters, that we can't rely on our elections anymore, then what's left but uh, violence um, as a way of solving disputes? Um, and around the country, that, that uh, false claim about our election has been used to um, usher in a new generation of Jim Crow laws uh, in state legislatures around the country uh, to disenfranchise particularly people of color. But uh, equally pernicious, maybe even more dangerous, ultimately, um, are a raft of laws designed to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisans. Um, or to allow a state legislature, if it doesn't like the result, if it doesn't like the popular will in a presidential election, uh, to uh, overturn the election and, um, and choose someone else to send their electors to represent. Uh, so I think we're in a very precarious position. We are working uh, on this issue uh, very uh, uh, deliberately. Um, we are doing it uh, in multiple ways. The January 6th Select Committee is investigating all the circumstances, all the different lines of effort to overturn the election. We're also working on reforms of the Electoral Count Act um, so that uh, if we get to a disputed result, that we have a better law on the books than this one written um, a century and a half ago, uh, which is very poorly written, ambiguous, and could lead to a real constitutional crisis. So um, yes, we are very much focused on those issues. The Washington Post, you may note, has discussed uh, drafting of potential reforms of the Electoral College Act, and Senator Angus King is the person they were focusing on. Um, his bill is reported to feature a rapid court review of any disruption by a state legislature, an attempt to seize control of the counts, and rapid court ruling on that. Um, making clear that the vice president conducts basically a ceremonial count with no power to particularly deal with it, and that challenges to state elections would have to be made by a larger group than simply one senator and one member of the House of Representatives as the act currently stands. Have you had the opportunity to formulate your views on those particular three initiatives that appear to be coming forward uh, from Senator King's office at some point? I haven't looked at Senator King's uh, draft. Um, in the House, uh, Zoe Lofgren has been leading a, a small group of us focused on this issue. She's the chair of the House Admin Committee, House Administration. And we are looking, you know, I can tell from your description of it, there are some commonalities. Uh, for example, raising the threshold um, that it would take to challenge electors so that it's not just one House member, one senator who can uh, challenge a, a state. Um, we are looking at the vice president's role. Um, there are a couple roles that he plays. One is to count the ballots. Uh, the other is uh, to preside over the proceedings. And we're looking at whether uh, it should be a different officer to preside over the proceedings. Uh, since the vice president often has a very particular stake uh, in the outcome. Um, and we're also looking at some you know, very uh, poorly drafted and never used provisions uh, like the safe harbor provisions to see how they should be reformed. Um, so we have clear guidelines about when 
Uh, Congress has the authority to step in and when it doesn't. Um, it sounds like the Senate draft is more reliant on the courts, um, but, uh, but I would need to take a careful look at it. One of the ironies of the situation here is the last time out, obviously, Donald Trump had a Republican vice president who he felt he could pressure into doing what he should not do. This next 2024 election, the vice president will be a Democrat. On at least that particular issue, taking a look at the role of the vice president in the proceedings, might there be some possibility of reaching across the aisle on bipartisan agreement on at least some aspects of the Electoral College Act? Absolutely. I, I think the ECA is one of the better candidates in this space uh, for both parties to work together. Um, indeed, we've been conferring with very conservative constitutional scholars and progressive ones and everybody in between. Uh, because as you say, uh, depending on the circumstances, uh, changes to that act can, can cut in both directions. Um, uh, I think that's part of the reason, uh, although there might be a couple of reasons why Mitch McConnell recently expressed interest in uh, amending the ECA, uh, both because I think he recognizes it's a need amendment, but uh, there may also be a tactical goal in trying to stymie progress of voting rights legislation by pushing reforms of the ECA instead. Uh, I don't think this is a situation where um, we, can, we can proceed with one to the detriment of the other. Both are really important. But it also is possible that both certainly could be addressed. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, it's even possible uh, if we can carve out uh, an exception to the filibuster that a voting rights bill would garner bipartisan support. Um, so uh, I think all of this is within the realm of possibility. Now, on the issue of voting rights, I think McConnell will do his utmost, as he has in the past, to stop it because so much of the Republican political business model in Congress is disenfranchisement. Uh, it seems as if the party has recognized that when more Americans vote, uh, they lose, and their hope of regaining power depends on being able to make it more, di more difficult to vote. And if that's, if that's their strategy, then obviously voting rights is going to be a tough sell with them. Reading Midnight in Washington, it's obviously that you deeply believe America needs two rival political parties, both which have at least some fundamental decency and are dedicated to the republic. And you describe your own family roots uh, as on both sides of the aisle. Um, in your book, you also make clear that you're deeply concerned about the descent of the Republican Party in particular into a kind of cult of personality around Donald Trump and Trump's power over the entire Republican Party, while it's enormous, might not be completely absolute. There are some indications that there are limits to that control. For instance, he made strong attempts to get McConnell removed as the Republican leader in the Senate and spent about an entire year in that project and never could get a single senator to agree with him on that. And there are some few other straws in the wind. Do you see areas in which Donald Trump's control of the Republican Party has not become dominant? You know, probably a few days ago, I would have said no. But, but actually, just within the last few days, we saw a very striking example of kind of the limits of a devotion to Donald Trump, at least in the Senate. 
in which Senator Rounds, a conservative Republican senator, uh, made a comment expressing the fact that uh, Joe Biden won the election and that it was a fair election. Uh, and of course, he was castigated by the former president for that and called a jerk. Um, and uh, I think the former president asked whether he was crazy or just stupid or something along those lines. Well, other senators quickly rallied to his defense uh, and essentially echoed what Rounds had to say. Um, now, that's unusual. Um, and you might that say, That is well, highly unusual. <laughs> it is. It is. And you'd ne- you would never see that with the very notable exceptions of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger uh, among Republicans in the House. Um, and you'd certainly never see any independence uh, from Kevin McCarthy. Um, so, you know, I, I think we need to put all this in perspective, though. Uh, on January 6th of last year, um, as we witnessed those of us that were here that day and those who watched it on TV, you know, the terrible end to which uh, that administration brought the country, there was a sense that he would be finally cast aside by the GOP. Uh, yeah. And you saw McCarthy and McConnell both make comments along those lines. But it was only a matter of days for McCarthy, weeks for McConnell before they decided that, no, uh, the base was sticking with him and therefore they would too. Uh, and I think tragically, in that moment, we lost the opportunity to move forward as a country. I still, I'm, I'm struck by some of the straws in the wind. Um, Trump is backing candidates, obviously, a- across the spectrum, but has, hasn't been able to clear fields for the U.S. Senate race in Missouri or the U.S. Senate race in Alabama. Alabama, he's backing Mo Brooks, who made that astonishing speech at the rally on January the 6th. Uh, And Brooks is now facing formidable opposition in the face of Trump. And Eric Greitens in Missouri, likewise. Trump was unable to clear those fields. So perhaps I'm a little optimistic that um, his grip may not be that firm. Yeah, you know, I think the midterms will, or actually the primary elections in the midterms will have a lot to say about that, um, just how strong that grip is and how many voters are willing to uh, consider other things other than the wishes of Donald Trump. I was particularly struck by the way you concluded Midnight in Washington. Um, you asked the question, how could a virtual carnival barker as wretched as Donald Trump succeed? And your answer was that our democracy had been unsettled by major economic problems. And if I may quote you, um, a democracy, like any other form of government, must deliver for its people. And America's democracy has been failing to meet the economic needs of our people. In the last quarter century, our country's promise of an accessible and burgeoning middle class has been breaking down, giving way to an increasingly constrained working class, and a cadre of uber-rich that would come to own a staggering portion of the nation's wealth. Now, suddenly, an entire middle class was at risk of collapsing." End quote. That's a striking summary of the economic conditions that led to Donald Trump. Um, and he went on to ponder that two profound causes of that uh, might indeed be the unconstrained globalization of trade and an unguided flood of automation that was eating up jobs. Now, for the last 40 years, as the problems of the middle class have begun to emerge, there is a massive debate, most of it academic so far, on what the heck we can do about America's middle class and restoring its vitality. The proposals are bluntly all over the lot. 
everything from universal basis income, basic income, taxing wealth, and then going out and improving education at a host of levels. Lots of ideas. The question of how to restore the American middle class is probably the most difficult question our government faces. What are your thoughts on the measures that could help us? Well, I think that uh, there were a number of underlying causes uh, to our present predicament. Uh, Certainly this growing yawning gap uh, between rich and poor and the struggle of the middle class was a major contributor. Uh, I think the way we get our information now, uh, where social media curates so much of it for us, um, and you have the growth of these um, far-right information ecosystems um, where people can live in those ecosystems and not be exposed to contrary views, Uh, That information landscape has also had a a very sizable impact. Uh, And then, you know, one other cause I would uh, point to is, uh, as we saw all too graphically on January 6th, um, an underlying bigotry uh, that could be exploited by a demagogue uh, in the face of economic anxiety uh, and through medium, a medium where fear and lies would travel with virality. Um, Looking at the first of those three challenges, I do think that what we have done in the last year in Congress has been the most significant attempt to deal with that since the New Deal. Uh, The passage of the rescue plan, the passage of the infrastructure bill, uh, and if we can pass Build Back Better, um, these are designed to lift up the working class uh, and help preserve uh, an opportunity for working people to get into the middle class. Um, I don't think that's going to be the end of it, even if we're successful with Build Back Better. I think there's more that we need to do to make sure that we're competitive uh, in a global, increasingly global workplace. Uh, And a big piece of that is the one you mentioned, which is making sure that we're educating our people to be able to compete and succeed. I represent uh, um, Caltech uh, along with Judy Chu. Uh, I think it's uh, in her district, but I have, um, uh, at least I used to have uh, JPL, which was their largest department until uh, the current reapportionment. Um, we would have the most brilliant people come from around the world to study at Caltech, and then we'd kick them out of the country uh, when they get the best education that could be offered. Um, that's, I think, economically suicidal. Uh, and, and the fact that there are many thousands of thousands of people in Pasadena, in Altadena, who will never have the chance to study at Caltech uh, because they won't get the kind of um, early education they need uh, to, to progress that way, um, that we need to deal with as well. So. There, there are a multitude, I think, of approaches we need to take, but I'm, I'm very proud that what we've done over the last year and what we're trying to do right now is a very substantial effort to address just that. On November 3rd last, the Republican Campaign Committee announced for the House that they're targeting an astonishing 70 House Democratic seats in 2022. And Democrats, meanwhile, are targeting some 22 House Republican seats. Um, And there has emerged a vigorous debate about how best to win those 92 elections, which voters we should concentrate on specifically. Some say Democrats should try to regain support among the working class and emphasize kitchen table issues like jobs, pay, and health care. And others urge focusing on the existing Democratic base, which is usually described as young voters, single women, college-educated, Black, Latino, and Asian Americans. And that the best way to turn out that base is by campaigning on things such as 
Republicans' ties to Donald Trump specifically, and Republicans' support for repealing Roe v. Wade and other measures. You played a major role in waging the national campaigns for House for years and know the battleground districts very well. When you're asked, what's your advice in the crucial races? Um, My advice is really twofold. Uh, One is that uh, we need to focus on those bread and butter issues that um, people are concerned with uh, every day in trying to make ends meet, uh, in trying to get health care for their family, put uh, food on the table uh, to get our economy moving, get inflation under control, uh, to uh, attack and defeat finally this uh, awful pandemic. Um, But I also emphasize that um, the degree to which our democracy is at risk right now uh, is also um, a very important, salient, uh, potent uh, issue. Um, And not just among voters, I think, but, uh, but for the future of the country. Um, and so I think both of these things are, are enormously important, dealing with those economic challenges and addressing them and talking about them, um, and, uh, and also addressing the democracy issues. Uh, I don't think we want to come across as only focused on one thing, uh, or if that, if that is one thing, it's the, the quality of life for the American people uh, and the quality of our democracy. Uh, but those, that's where I would put our focus. So make sure we have an economy that works for everyone, Uh, that we don't lose our voting rights, because if we do, uh, we lose our democracy, and then what comes after is uh, anybody's guess. Mm -hmm. So let me uh, turn to your work on the Intelligence Committee. Um, The Intelligence Committee and your work uh, therein was a large part of the discussion in Midnight in Washington. And just recently, December 30th, Kevin McCarthy appointed Mike Turner as the minority lead on the Intelligence Committee. Politico has reported that Mike Turner wants to repair partisan relations on the committee. That's despite him taking some critical punches at you in the past, and despite Republican leader Kevin McCarthy recently saying he will remove you from the committee entirely if Republicans take the House in 2022. But at the same time, Mike Turner has been a deep critic of Russia even getting into a very public, spirited argument with Fox's Tucker Carlson over the potential threat of an invasion of Ukraine. That is a heady mix of conflicting pressures. So in the the midst of all that, uh, are you willing to share your assessment of Mike Turner and do you expect you'll be able to work with the guy? I I certainly hope so. I think that uh, with Devin Nunes leaving to run a Trump media company, uh, there's a new opportunity for a reset on our committee. I'm certainly doing everything in my power to help that along and keep our committee operating within a reasonable, um, uh, with, with a reasonable amount of dissent and, and, uh, and a heavy focus on uh, getting the, the job of the American people done. I, I will say that even with Nunes, uh, each year, I think up until the last, we were able to get our intelligence bill passed, our annual oversight bill. So even through the worst of things, uh, we got the work of the committee done, which was positive. So I'm confident uh, and hopeful that that will happen with Turner. Um, in terms of McCarthy's threat uh, about removing uh, members, myself included, from committees, um, this is basically a nod to Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who is demanding that um, Republicans... 
pay back her removal from uh, the committee and a committee and, and Paul Gosar for uh, circulating a video glorifying uh, the murder of one of our colleagues. Um, it's the, you know, sadly, uh, a good indication of the weakness of Kevin McCarthy, um, that he doesn't have a strong enough position within the Republican conference, or I think a stronger set of values uh, that he can't stand up to the QAnon base in his party. And one other thing that the, you know, the midterms will decide is uh, how much that QAnon base of the Republican Party grows in the Congress, because you have people who are, uh, you know, at the Capitol on January 6th running, you've got people who are avowed QAnon supporters running, um, and McCarthy has embraced them all. And so um, it's not as if uh, we would be going back to the days of a Paul Ryan or a John Boehner. Um, in my view, uh, the idea that Kevin McCarthy could ever control the House is such a danger to our democracy. Uh, I tell you this, if Trump loses the next presidential election, uh, McCarthy will do everything he can to overturn the result, just as he did last time. And should he be in the majority, he will overturn it. Well, that's a uh, bleak way to terminate an interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let me say this, because I, I, I don't want to end on such a bleak note. Um, I titled the book Midnight in Washington because midnight may be the darkest hour of the day everywhere in the world, but it's also a hopeful time because we know that what follows has the prospect of light. Uh, we're gonna get through this. The country's been through worse in the past. This too shall pass. But I do think what we do right now will uh, have a, a deep impact on how quickly it passes. Uh, and I think we all have a really important role to play in our public and private life and our corporate and civic life. So this is a time for all of us to be engaged in the project of uh, rescuing our democracy. Well, thank you for spending time with us today, Congressman. Molly, great to talk with you. Um, hope to uh, see you very soon. See you soon. I've known Adam Schiff since we were both in the California State Legislature. I remember him trying to decide if he would run for the House of Representatives in what would be a very tough race. I thought then that he was a great guy, loaded with talent. But obviously, no one could foresee the national prominence he would achieve from his leadership of the impeachment of Donald Trump. Thinking about our recent conversation, Schiff's optimism that there could be a bipartisan reform of the Electoral Count Act is flat-out refreshing. I don't know about you, but for me, the fashion for doom and gloom that pours out of our media has become boring. For me, the most important part of our talk was not the immediate issues of the day. It was Schiff's concern with the fate of the American middle class that most drew my interest. I agree with Schiff's assessment that the rise of Donald Trump was made possible by our collective failure to deliver for the American middle class. The facts are simple. Half of America has not had a raise in over 40 years. And it is also true, as Schiff argued, that Joe Biden saw his major social initiative precisely as providing relief to a beleaguered middle class. The fate of the American middle class is not a purely economic issue. It is, just as Schiff warns, deeply entwined in the fate of the American Republic as well. Neither thrives without the other. And the neglect of the fate of the American middle class has become an American tragedy. What do we do to revive the vitality of our middle class? 
That whole topic will be one this podcast returns to a great deal. I want to thank Congressman Schiff for agreeing to our conversation and, as ever, to my producer, Anna Kumu, for her excellent work. In coming episodes, I will meet and talk with Governor Steve Bullock of Montana on a needed course correction in the Democratic Party, and Francis Lee of Princeton, who challenges the conventional wisdom that Congress is incapable of creating significant bipartisan legislation. I'll see you next time on The Political Conversation.